Hello everyone, it's October 10th, 2023. This week we got space station news. China wants to expand Tiangong, Ninorax and Northrop Grumman are teaming up for Star Lab, and Orbital Reef may be in troubled waters. Then we talked to Ben Reed of Quantum Space about orbital infrastructure beyond LEO. It's a big show, so let's go and lift off! Welcome to episode 429 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So how do you guys pick a watermelon? Uh, I generally don't. I don't I don't eat it too often. Why not? But, Why not uh, delicious? It is. It's just, I don't know. Well, and if I do eat it, I'm not going to pick a watermelon. I'm going to buy like pre-sliced fruit just because I don't need a whole oh. watermelon. That's a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I've ever picked out a watermelon in my life, to be honest with you. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. I well, guess how do you I'll do be, it? I thought, yeah. I thought you were setting up a joke. Like, how do you pick a watermelon? <laughs> <laughs> you grab it by the, you know, I don't know, you come up with some kind of punchline. You here. ask it, water it'll rather, water it'd rather do. Um, De- Dennis, I'm assuming you eat more melons than, than David. Uh, well, based on his description, yes, but I guess I don't know what to say other than I just look for something that looks like a healthy piece of fruit based on yeah. the exterior. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, so here's, here's the, the one big thing, like there are little tips um, that you'll see around the internet all the time, when, like um, look to see if the stem was cut or if it fell off. And it's like, yeah, well, great. But most of the time, you know, you can't tell that because you're not at a fruit stand or whatever. Like in the grocery store, everything's going to be really cleaned up. Um, and then like one of the fairly effective ways to differentiate is to look at the belly. That's the yellow side that was sitting on the ground. Um, the bigger the belly, the better the watermelon. So if you've got a big yellow spot, that's going to be better than one with small, a small yellow spot or no yellow spot. But the number one thing, if you have to remember only one thing when you're going to pick watermelons is pick the densest watermelon you can find. Um, and you will look a little crazy picking up a bunch of watermelons and not inspecting them, not thumping on them. And it doesn't matter. If you just go and pick up as many watermelons as you can and then take the the densest one, so not the heaviest one, because that would be the biggest one usually, find the one where you look at it and you go, I know how much that's going to weigh. And then you pick it up and you're surprised. That's going to be the best watermelon. And best in what sense? Like the uh, the fruit will be the like the richest and most succulent? Like... It'll be, it'll be the sweetest, the sweetest. Okay. Just, just overall, I mean, overall the best, but yeah, if you, if you, uh, have two watermelons that you can't tell which one's going to be better, don't thump them. If they're both a similar density, then look at the belly and go with the one with the bigger belly, like use that as your fallback. But (laughs) usually if you go and start picking up a bunch of watermelons, you'll find, you know, one or you'll, you'll be able to find a couple of categories, right? Like you'll find some differences and it's really fun because like, you can look at a watermelon and know how much that's going to weigh or have an expectation and just do it like subconsciously whenever you pick anything up, right? Like if you pick up, have you ever done this? Like you're putting away the groceries and you go to pick up a paper bag and you think it's still got some cans in it and it doesn't. And you wind up throwing it up on, throwing it up to the roof because you picked it up too hard. No, is that just me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you go to pick up something. and Yeah. yeah. And it's lighter than you expected. And you just, you look like a fool. It's kind of the same thing with watermelons. Like if you just pick them up, you will already have an expectation of how much they're going to weigh. And if one surprises you at how heavy it is, that's the one like you, you automatically do that density calculation in your head. It's, it's kind of cool hmm. once you, once you've done it once or twice. Let's 
let's talk about space stations and I guess current and up and coming ones, right? Uh, we got some space station news. So the first one we want to talk about is actually Tiangong and uh, its planned expansion. So uh, right now it's at three modules, but they want to go to six. And so I guess three was how many, was that meant to be the total number? Was that meant to be the final size of the station? Because I actually don't remember. Yeah, I think the baseline was to have the three kind of make a, a T pattern and then have your spacecraft dock relative to that. Yeah. But apparently they want to, they actually want to add some more modules. And this is uh, to facilitate a certain amount of, uh, I guess, international cooperation with uh, certain nations. I didn't read the details, but obviously there are certain countries which will not be participating. <laughs> Invited to the table. Yeah. And I think I read the acronym BRICS again, which I don't know how real that even is. Um, oh, that's, that's a, like, that is a, it's that real. Is a thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, going from uh, the idea is to uh, expand Tiangong from uh, three to six modules and basically have it running uh, a little extra, uh, expand its lifetime from 10 to 15 years. Uh, I'm sure you can always kind of push beyond that. But yeah, I mean, if, if you know, if you currently have three modules and you expand it to six, order of magnitude, you're doubling the size of your station, <laughs> even if, you know, it's not exactly doubling or maybe slightly more than doubling or whatever. But um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really cool because it's not the idea of like starting from, I, I, what I think is really cool about it is that we're going to see a station get much bigger on orbit, right? As the, U, as the ISS plans for its end of life at the end of this decade, you know, Russia can talk about their own station all they want, and we can start looking into developing these commercial lunar stations, or commercial lunar, commercial LEO stations, all that we want, or destinations, right? But the fact is that if, you know, the way that China has been speedrunning space programs, if they're going to add three more modules by the end of this decade, uh, or a little beyond, uh, they're... I'm, I'm very confident they're going to do it. And so we are, in fact, going to get to see, you know, some some new modules flying up on these, you know, big long marches and, you know, connecting. And we're going to have a, a larger station, although it's still going to basically not come quite close to where the ISS is, which has 16 modules for comparison, which is actually more than I thought. If I had to guess off the top of my head, you know, how many hmm. modules are there on the ISS, I would have guessed more closer to 10. Yeah, I think I would have too, actually. I guess it depends on whether you count MPLM, which they probably do. The PMAs probably count as well. PMAs, that definitely <laughs> artificially bumps those numbers up. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I was going to say things like, you know, Quest and Bishop, you know, those are smaller mm -hmm. things that yeah. are still, you know, properly, you know, modules. But, and as far as international agreements go and everything, right, we've got, you know, what we were just talking about before. But um, what I think is interesting is that I always like that uh, ESA is almost kind of like a, a bridge in terms of working with, uh, uh, you know, at least before the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, they they tended to be a good bridge, I felt. And uh, at one point, they were planning on sending astronauts to Tiangong, but they kind of, you know, pulled out and said they're not really in a position to do it. And while that's still their case, you know, hopefully, you know, or it's possible at some point that we could have European astronauts on this expanded, uh, uh, bigger Tiangong station. Which um, those three modules, like, I guess this is still early, so they haven't really fleshed out what they're going to be yet. You know, probably more science labs. Why not? That seems to be kind of the, a good base <laughs> type of module to add to your space station. But um, we also have the uh, Shuntian Space Telescope uh, being planned. And so this will be now docking with a larger station where that is the Hubble class. Although given its field of view, I guess it should really be called a, a, a Roman space telescope class. 
uh, telescope. But yeah, uh, this Shuntian is planned to be put essentially in a uh, the same orbit, but a different phase uh, from Tiangong, and then be able to periodically dock, rendezvous and dock with the station for any kind of servicing that needs to be done. And so you can end up having a Hubble where you don't have to worry about having a space shuttle that you need to send there to be able to keep it alive. Or, you know, if we potentially a different spacecraft might be going to Hubble, depending on <laughs> who you believe in uh, these different companies that are aspiring to actually do a servicing mission, the mission there in the future, which would be great. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say then. Just, you know, I mean, a space telescope docking with a space station. I mean, I don't yeah. know about you guys. That sounds like the coolest thing <laughs> <Yeah>. ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. as, as long as it's got uh, a lens cap. Yeah. That it's yes, a, it's a cool proposition in and of itself. A little less embarrassing if they, uh, yeah, if they launch it and the uh, optics aren't correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess let's move on to other space station news. So Northrop Grumman and Voyager, what's going on there? What's the next thing? Not much. Just if you're keeping track, uh, Northrop uh, was originally thinking of developing and launching their own space station, and now they have said that they're not going to do it anymore, and instead they are going to join. Uh, Voyager and Nanorax with their Starlab. You know, Starlab, it's a pretty cool looking station if you just, you know, it's kind of hard to uh, uh, describe, uh, but like, it's a pretty neat one. It's one of like the leading, you know, destinations or, you know, concepts right now. And it's got, I guess, a big, uh, it's it's a smaller one, definitely much more modest than uh, what you saw with Orbital Reef, which was the whole idea of being a commercial space park on orbit. And so uh, it looks like it's got an inflatable habitat and then uh, maybe kind of a core module and then a like power and propulsion module. And so the three of them uh, kind of together make up this sort of, you know, proto star lab idea. But, you know, NG, they've been around forever. And, um, you know, at least, you know, before their consolidations, you know, Northrop and Grumman, you know, have been around uh, you know, even longer than uh, them together as a combined entity. But yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of expertise and practical things that they'll bring to it. And so, who knows? Maybe Starlab will end up actually getting, uh, you know, built and put on orbit, which would be pretty sweet. But I guess, yeah, we'll just have to keep an eye out. So I guess one space station that's looking like it might not be built, um, that orbital park. Jeez, I'm forgetting the name. Uh, reef. Yeah, the orbital reef. So this is, you know, a partnership between Sierra and Blue Origin, mostly Blue Origin. Um, they're the ones who are heading the whole thing. And this was announced a few years ago back in 2021. Um, but since then, there really haven't been many updates. And it seems that that's because they've been kind of both been preoccupied with other stuff. Blue Origin, obviously, it has this whole lunar lander to worry about. That's its primary focus. Sierra is focusing on Dream Chaser, and so it seems like they're not really putting much effort into the space station. So far, there hasn't been any official word, but there have been some, um, well, in fact, actually three anonymous sources which have confirmed a potential end to the partnership. At the very least, that there is talkings about things changing. The quote is that the situation is still fluid. So that means that, you know, this could still change, but apparently things are a little bit rocky right now. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's, it's not a solid partnership like it 
used to be or or to the extent that it ever was. I don't know. But um, <laughs> things might be changing. Just a couple numbers. So, so far, Blue Origin has been paid $24 million since they are the primary contractor. They haven't paid that much by NASA, and that's out of a total of $130 billion. That's just for the design work or the initial design work. So that's how much has been paid. Um, and there hasn't been any kind of amendment to that contract. So apparently that's still go in things. Again, the situation has not actually changed yet. And, and that that contract, the $130 billion contract, was part of the commercial Leo destinations, the CLD. That must be wrong. It's not $130 billion, is it? Oh, $130 million. You're right. Yeah, $130 million. Yeah, it'd be Did I say $130 billion? I might have yeah. said. <laughs> yeah. It'd be pretty crazy if uh, if CLD issued that $130 billion for design work for a Leo space station <laughs> compared to Blue Origin's... Uh, eclipse contract of 3.4 billion dollars right like 100 times more seems a bit a bit much but yeah so um so that that's where that money is coming from. I, I didn't know off the top of my head. I had to go look it up. Yeah. And so, yeah, as you said, um, they have been awarded $3.4 billion for the Lunar Lander, and uh, that has taken priority. My thoughts on it were, well, I don't know, just that you had Blue Origin involved. And I kind of saw this coming is that maybe they're not as committed as you might think or as, you know, like one would hope. Like aside from New Glenn, right, which I mean is great mm-hmm. for a suborbital rocket and space tourism, is the idea that like should we just be waiting around for blue origin to come through with like five or six huge things simultaneously in like the next yeah. couple of years i mean because that's what it really is it's like we're gonna do everything and it's just you know really big plans and it's just waiting and waiting and waiting and so i i understand the whole mm-hmm. idea of making sure you do it right first but like I don't know. I guess they built the engines, which is good, but like space station, rocket, ISRU capabilities, all this stuff. It's it's a lot. And we're just constantly waiting. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better. So let's just do two short and sweets this week. Ben, what's the first? First up, uh, Luna 25's failure analysis. And I guess failure analysis is in quotes. Uh, Russia says their lunar lander crashed due to a failure to turn on an accelerometer during their orbit lowering burn. With no rotation data, each commanded altitude change resulted in thrusters firing for a set amount of time rather than turning off when the requested acceleration had been achieved. Roscosmos says they're not giving up and may move the launch dates of Luna 26 and Luna 27 earlier in response to this failure. And then next up, Stokes Space gets more funding. Following a successful test of their upper stage last month, Stokes Space received $100 million in venture capital funding, the majority of which was led by venture capital firm Industrious Ventures. This additional funding will help in the development of the first stage of the company's rocket, which has been named Nova. The funding will also help with development of a launch site at Cape Canaveral with the goal of a full-scale orbital test flight in 2025. Okay, and welcome to our interview today with Ben Reed, CTO of Quantum Space. Ben, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to a lively discussion. Yeah, me too. Uh, Quantum Space, uh, (laughs) what you're doing sounds very uh, innovative to me, and so I'm sure we're going to have a lot of good questions for you uh, (laughs) about what's going on here, because... yeah, what you're uh, trying to develop without giving uh, much away, uh, we'll get into it, but uh, it's pretty 
Novel and ambitious, I would say, are two things to describe it. Well, I, I'm happy to talk about the ambitious part uh, when we get into it. Uh, we, I was directed by my, uh, uh, by my co-founder, Cam Gaffarian, to uh, only bring him ambitious ideas. So we can certainly touch on that a lot as we, uh, as we get into the interview. Perfect. So uh, maybe a good place to start um, would be to get a little background, uh, both maybe for yourself and I guess maybe at the same time kind of integrating uh, Quantum Space's uh, background uh, as well. Just learn a little bit about yourselves, so like kind of maybe elevator pitch at some point. Uh, sure. Yeah, so um, uh, I, I, it's it's kind of easy to talk about my my career in uh, decade uh, intervals. Uh, I, I haven't changed jobs many times. Um, I, I got a degree in chemistry from Catholic University. Uh, I started my first uh, job right out of college with the American Dental Association, and I spent ten years uh, as an organic chemist. Uh, working on new dental materials so that composite fillings would last as long as as mercury amalgam fillings. So I did that for for a decade. I then uh, shifted gears uh, pretty pretty majorly, at least in terms of application, uh, to NASA. And I spent the next ten years working on the last three Hubble servicing missions. I was the lead materials engineer. Uh, at, at Goddard Space Flight Center, um, uh, helping to build new cameras, new batteries, new computers, new cryo coolers, uh, and then helping train the astronauts on how to handle materials issues with a uh, degrading uh, telescope in orbit. Um, I, so that was the, the next 10 years of my career. I then shift, changed jobs and became a manager, started off as deputy and then became division director uh, for robotic servicing. So not human servicing, but robotic servicing and, uh, spent a decade working on robots to try to, uh, get close to some of the capabilities of, of astronauts during an EVA. Uh, and that was the, the 2010s. And, uh, that decade concluded, uh, with uh, a little thing, which I don't know if you guys have covered in the podcast yet or not called, uh, global pandemic. Uh, during that, uh, you know, a lot of soul searching went on around the, the globe, uh, including yours truly. And I decided to try my my hand at a, a, a new career. Um, and I teamed up with Cam Gaffarian, who is a serial entrepreneur. Um, and uh, he gave me the challenge of uh, coming up with an idea for a, a new space company that would be uh, disruptive, revolutionary. Uh, he didn't want to beat his competition by having 5% better margins. He wanted to do something transformative. So he and I started Quantum Space, and the vision was to provide infrastructure so that space travel beyond geo, uh, in particular geo and cislunar space, and, and even beyond that eventually, would be as, as routine, as safe, as predictable, as as space travel is today in in Leo, um, many many aspects of that infrastructure just do not exist, and so we have an ambitious goal to allow uh, space exploration, uh, national security, space commerce to flourish in into in beyond geo geo environment. So that is the short version. Hope that wasn't too long. No, that was perfect, and uh, and yeah, I I really love that. Not only was there kind of a logic 
between your career trajectory, but also a lot of times um, when we talk about people who are, you know, just starting their careers or, you know, still going to school and thinking about what they want to do, that ending up in NASA in the space sector, you really don't need to be uh, an aerospace engineer to do that. And and I think you really just kind of show coming from chemistry and that you can have, uh, yeah, come from a different background and find a seamless transition into into space that way. And I, and I promise I won't, <laughs> David and Ben, you guys might be uh, rolling your eyes right now. I, I'm not going to shift the rest of this conversation towards you talking about the Hubble missions and peppering you with questions about that. Cause yeah, I absolutely yeah, yeah. love shuttle. I'm <laughs> when you started saying that, I was like, Oh my goodness. Oh, those were, those were fabulous days. Um, just to be part of that, their world-class team, you know, changing the world and, and helping astronauts uh, create a, a, an observatory that quite literally was unlocking the secrets of the universe. Uh, it was a dream come true. And I, I just feel incredibly lucky to be uh, to be a part of that team. So like, sorry, I, I am going to divert us a tiny bit. So I'm assuming you've like met and maybe even trained Mike Massimino one of the oh, yes. funniest astronauts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great guy. Oh, um, yeah. Mass is Mass is an amazing guy. He really is. And also one of the most impactful things I've ever seen, oddly enough, is CoStar. And I know that that was before your time. Uh, and I, I really hope I can say that you weren't responsible for bringing CoStar back down. But, you know, I mean, you did replace it. Uh, so I, I guess that's a good thing that I got to see it in person be, because of, you know, your cameras. Well, I will. I'll, I'll give you my thirty-second co-star story. So we put up a COS Cosmic Origin Spectrograph um, in one of the later missions, and uh, it has an ion grid um, in front of its uh, detector, and that ion grid uh, degrades with uh, atomic oxygen erosion, and so it was. And this was a known uh, feature uh, uh, of the camera when it was installed. Uh, but we got to thinking about, you know, being able to um, uh, predict exactly how much degradation would occur and should more science be done with it in the early years and not, you know, postpone that science to the later years when it would have less sensitivity. Um, and we realized that that CoStar had been in the exact same uh, uh, position getting AO down the barrel, atomic oxygen down the barrel of the, of the telescope, and um, that there was an exposed uh, uh, wiring harness uh, that was a, a part of the assembly that uh, would have uh, been degraded in a very similar way to what the ion detector was now experiencing. So I got to go down to the Smithsonian after hours and uh, climb over uh, a co-star and snip out a, a piece of that uh, cabling so that we could bring it back to Goddard and analyze it. And while I was there, we we pulled off a couple of the CoStar's mirrors as well to measure the contamination level uh, that uh, had been accreted onto those mirrors. Um, so that was that was a very fun evening to work with Valerie Neal, uh, who was the curator uh, at the Smithsonian at the time and um, uh, Air and Space uh, uh, Museum for the Smithsonian. And uh, and and collect those uh, historical artifacts for for examination. That was that was one cool evening. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, di I didn't realize that you guys had done that. That's pretty clever. Okay, thank you for the diversion. <laughs> go, go and shut up again. <laughs> that is that is awesome. Thank you, uh, co-host Ben, for asking that question, and uh, uh, guest Ben for giving us a uh, a bonus co-star story. <laughs> um, 
So I guess um, to maybe set up the big picture, uh, when, when you and Cam were talking, I guess what's the current state of maybe infrastructure and communication uh, among satellites and I guess the ground? Uh, uh, currently, what are the limitations and what did you feel like uh, was the problem you wanted to solve? Uh, yeah, so we, you know, uh, the, the lower cost of launch uh, in the last uh, decade has certainly opened up many new um a commercial an exploration um, and national defense opportunities for the global space sector, and and when you're in Leo and you are you know between um, uh, uh, two hundred and and a thousand kilometers, say, or even up to Mio at eight thousand, uh, access to ground stations, uh, you can get some pretty pretty amazing data rates. Um, all those satellites are below GPS. And so they benefit tremendously from having the ability to put in low cost, uh, very simple, very reliable uh, GPS receivers uh, on those satellites to help them with the uh, uh, orbit determination. Um, likewise, all those satellites benefit from simple Keplerian motion, right? It's pretty easy to predict where you're going to be in the next 24 hours. Sure, atmospheric drag and solar radiation pressure will complicate that. Um but uh, it's pretty easy to predict where objects are going to be 24, 48 hours uh, into the future with, with pretty high uh, precision. Um, none of that is true in, in beyond geo and, uh, and especially out uh, by the moon. So Cam and I had many a discussion about the upcoming wave of lunar missions, right? The Artemis program and all the uh, Artemis Accords uh, countries. Uh, have uh, 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 many many uh, programs that are that are planned. Um, China, uh, ESA, JAXA, ISRO, uh, all have have lunar ambitions to conduct more and more missions uh, in and around the moon um, and and beyond. And we really saw an opportunity to provide value to every single one of those potential customers by providing them a local communications relay. Imagine a, a, a lunar lander, which is so incredibly mass constrained to get out of this gravity well, we call Earth, uh, and into, uh, into lunar orbit, and then into that gravity well, and then slow down for a soft landing is incredibly difficult, as recent events have, uh, have highlighted for us yet one more time. Well, just think if their calm burden didn't have to, uh, 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 the requirements for that communications equipment broadcast all the way back down to earth, but rather to a local communications relay. Um, it would, it would likewise computing. They could offload some of the computing tasks uh, to a local uh, uh, edge compute center, a data center in, in uh, Lagrange point or in low lunar orbit, as well as PNT. If you're, if you're communicating with the spacecraft in, in RF, um, it's easy to, to also provide them uh, an orbit determine uh, orbit determination uh, knowledge of where they are, you know, as the uh, communications relay, the quantum space asset that they would be communicating with, uh, serving as a pseudo ground station from which they could get range information um, mm. as well as range rate, you know, Doppler information, and so it just. It just provides so many uh, uh, services that they don't have to rely on uh, themselves. It allows them, nothing in space is easy, but it allows them proverbially to hit the easy button. And, and we, we think there's tremendous value in that. And that's what energized 
Cam and I to start Quantum Space. I dig. And and, and so when you talk about the the PNT, is is this uh, kind of what uh, the the caps part of Capstone is currently trying to kind of demonstrate? And are you paying close attention to that mission? Fabulous mission, absolutely. Yeah. So they are they are working on uh, you know beyond uh, uh, breaking the ties to ground stations on Earth um, for their uh, PNT solution. And uh, we, we think we, we applaud the progress that they have made. And that is the type of thing that we are working on as well. If, if our constellation and what we call a constellation of quantum space assets in orbit is quantum net. So a quantum net constellation of assets, uh, we will know where we are from using, uh, you know, OpNav, uh, uh, celestial navigation, as well as we will have a connection back to uh, ground stations on Earth. Um, so we will know where we are, and we can then provide, especially with two and three assets communicating uh, or, or uh, tracking um, a, a customer's asset uh, in that region, uh, we can provide a very accurate uh, positioning for them so that they don't have to rely on and communicating all the way back down to Earth. So, you know, it's not as sexy as saying we're putting a lander on the moon to, you know, look at this this uh, time capsule of the solar system which the moon is but it allows others to do these amazing things and and we just think that'll be transformative for the global aerospace community no i agree i mean just when it comes to these recent failures we see how the mundane can result in the loss of a multi-million dollar mission time and time again even if yeah if we, even if we want to call it that 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 is exactly right um you know it it's funny because of the successes in the, in the 60s with the lunar programs of both uh, Russia and the US, you know, people uh, just started saying, oh, well, that must be easy because we did it so well so many times. Well, the, the amount of resources NASA put into those missions was unbelievable. You know, 35 and even 70 meter dishes on the ground and, and a team of, um, of uh, engineers supporting those missions. That's just not sustainable with the volume of future missions that have uh, that are underway or, or been announced and, and are about to get underway. And so that is our our vision is to uh, unlock this new region of space by allowing those missions to be more reliable, um, uh, less costly and uh, more more effective at what they're trying to do. And, and, and just to be clear, we, we've thrown around PNT a couple of times. And that, so that's position, navigation and timing. So essentially identifying the state of your vehicle at a given moment. Exactly right. service that GPS provides. Exactly right. Yeah. Sorry. I, uh, uh, use of terms. <laughs> no, um, no. Use of terms and jargon is very much encouraged on this, <laughs> in the show. I mean, I love learning jargon. We'll end up spending 10 minutes when we learn some kind of mundane word that like, uh, I guess, uh, somebody who actually works in the field will just kind of throw out like, eh, it's nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll say two more services, which uh, I haven't touched on yet, but are critical um, as we, we globally start to populate that region of space is um, space domain awareness. So space domain awareness, um, as, as many folks define it, is a combination of space situational awareness. So being able to uh, have an awareness of where all the other resident space objects are um, and uh, the environment itself. So through the use of uh, EOIR uh, imagers, uh, cameras, and uh, space weather monitoring equipment on board our spacecraft, uh, we will be providing our, 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 both ourselves and our customers 
with uh, space domain awareness, um, I will I will highlight there was a very interesting event which didn't make a lot of news in 2021, partly because we were going through that pandemic thing, and that was um, ISRO, uh, the Indian uh, Space Research Organization, or India's uh, NASA, and and NASA's LRO, a Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, had to perform a con- collision avoidance maneuver around the moon. So for those of the, the, the audience not familiar with collision avoidance maneuver, it's very aptly named, right? It's a maneuver to prevent a possible collision. And so, you, you know, debris in low Earth orbit is absolutely daunting and uh, problem and, and getting worse. And I could talk for hours on it. I'm on a, actually two uh, debris panels or, or, or a, a debris panel in, um, in two weeks out in um, Satellite Innovation uh, Conference. But um, this collision avoidance maneuver at the moon was so important because without an atmosphere like Earth has, there is no natural cleansing, right? Uh, uh, things in, in especially low, loon, low LEO um, deorbit relatively quickly on the grand scale of things. And, and medium low Earth orbit and high low Earth orbit, uh, you know, the, the atmosphere density starts to get pretty sparse. But there is still a, a, a natural cleansing um, effect on, on debris. It slowly gets dragged down and burns up. But the absence of an atmosphere around the moon, of course, means that a debris field there would would essentially be be infinite, um, and it would be very challenging, or or more challenging for future lunar landers and and other missions in and around that volume to have to deal with a debris field there. So we at Quantum Space think it's critical to get early uh, uh, a, a an early definitive catalog of resident space objects out there, whether they're human-made or not, and and track them and uh, try uh, to uh, propagate their orbits in a more complex environment than, than just a Keplerian environment down here uh, around the Earth um, to prevent any future collisions uh, from happening um, because the the debris field would just be so catastrophic to that environment. So, so I'm 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 curious. I guess I'll just ask kind of directly if you if you had to pick one that we're more likely to experience if we were a Kessler syndrome in Leo or a Kessler syndrome in cislunar space in the next n many years, where that of course is right. Like once one collision essentially causes a chain reaction where the debris creates new collisions, which create new debris and so on and so forth. And so it's self-sustaining. Um, could, do, do you think that one is, is even more dangerous than the other potentially or more likely? That, that's a super question. Um, you know, uh, space is big and, and even with the amount of debris in, in low Earth orbit, if you do the uh, density calculation for the amount of mass per cubic kilometer in LEO, it's still astonishingly small. I mean, it, space is just so big. So whenever we talk about collisions, whether it's in LEO or in, in low lunar orbit, it's always a very low probability event with a very high impact or consequence uh, from that event. So you're multiplying, you know, really small numbers by really big numbers and uh, slight changes in the assumptions will, will drive the product of those two, um, you know, uh, to be a high number or a low number. 
uh, pretty quickly. Um, mm. Yeah, the l- low lunar environment is so much smaller just because of the, you know, the, 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 the smaller size of the moon and with no atmosphere. Um, but there's just so many more objects in, in low lunar, low Earth orbit. And I guess, you know, the other major factor here is, is the cross-sectional area of the debris, right? The, the probability of collision is a direct function of that cross-sectional area, the volume that it's sweeping out on a daily basis. And I guess in general, we could say stuff around the earth is bigger than stuff around the moon, but that's pretty general statement. Um, and I, I guess to answer your question, uh, well, one more factor that affects the uh, thoughtful response to your question is how many of the planned lunar missions that countries and companies have put out in the press in the last couple of years are actually going to take place. You know, uh, going to the, I don't know how many times we'll say it in this podcast, going to the moon is hard. And uh, so each one of these missions, you know, hardly ever goes off early, if you know what I mean. You know, you just look at Artemis as an example. So I, I don't know, that's that's a toughie as an engineer. That's that's tough to uh, uh, that's tough to say which is where, which is more likely. Yeah, no, I, and I think you did a great job pointing out that, you know, the reason why it's tough is because, as you say, there's so many different uh, competing effects mm-hmm. uh, between the two spaces. And yeah, yeah, I think I think if you're tying it to n number of years in the future, it's got to be Earth, right? Like, ju- like you said, Ben, like, it, ju- you, we just don't have anything in, in lunar orbit. But I can totally see like, a, a may- maybe as bad as a science fiction show or something, where Kessler syndrome kicks off on the moon faster, because we just we don't notice we're not paying as much attention to deorbiting things around the moon as we are on Earth. So, like, we could potentially solve it here. That's that's a good question. Sorry, I hate to interrupt, but like, it, that is a fantastic question, Dennis. One other interesting quandary that the global community is is I don't want to say struggling with because I don't know. There's still a small percent of people thinking about it, but what is the most responsible way to uh, end the life of a lunar satellite? Uh, mm. Some some people argue very convincingly, crash it into the moon. You know, we'll we'll measure the ejecta, we'll look for water and everything else in the ejecta from a from a lunar collision, and the moon is big. It's not like you know a few uh, satellites colliding with it is going to cause uh, you know uh, an impact to the ability for future uh, landers. Um, but others argue that, you know, it's a pristine environment and every collision with the lunar surface, you know, perturbs that, um, a bit more. And so, and to, to not crash into the moon, once you're in lunar orbit, you, you know, that requires Delta V that's propellant that could be used for science or exploration. Um, so it's, it's not a simple question. Again, the earth's atmosphere of being able to burn things up is, is kind of nice in that regard. And we don't have that luxury at the moon. I suppose that's another idea for you. Maybe you can get into the, you know, deorbiting stuff in lunar orbit. <laughs> or not necessarily deorbiting, but getting it out of orbit. Yeah, yeah. And and, and in fact, if I could just jump on you, David. Um, yeah, Ben, you, you, we're taking this, you're taking this in such a interesting directions. But I feel like, because I want to ask you that as well. <laughs> but first, maybe you could just tell us more about, I guess, the, you know, how, what is quantum net itself, right? Like what is the, the plan itself, the relationship uh, between, you know, it, 
the constellation of spacecraft, what type of spacecraft. You've already kind of alluded to they're going to be multi-use, not even dual use, it sounds like, multi, uh, multiple functions. And so could you, I guess, maybe give us kind of a, a foundation on quantum net, and then we can dive into things like like disposal plans uh, for when you're in cislunar space, because I agree with David, that's that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly tell you uh, more about it. And um, it ties directly into um, uh, disposal uh, as, as part of the plan. So we have, uh, um, and you can, you can find them on our website, we have uh, essentially three classes of, of satellites that we are um, envisioning for this architecture, for the quantum net. Uh, the, the first being our Scout, which is our smallest uh, vehicle. Um, likely it will be a Espa Grande class. And this, uh, we, we, uh, you mentioned the capstone mission earlier. It is, uh, I believe, a, a 12U uh, spacecraft, um, and uh, we 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 have assessed various sizes, and we are intrigued with the advantages of having something more like an ESPA or ESPA Grande class satellite, which allows for the collection of multiple phenomenologies concurrently on the same space platform. So, say you wanted to collect in the optical and the IR you know, two different imagers on the same vehicle or optical and RF um, at the same time on the same vehicle. And that starts to require more swap or size, weight, and power. Um, so we think ESPA or ESPA Grande is, is like the sweet spot for a sensing spacecraft um, to help collect for the, the space domain awareness data products we'll be, we are providing or will be providing. Um, as well as serving as uh, comm relay nodes. The moon's pretty far away, as you all know, and uh, we think it's, it's enabling if there were a, a, uh, a delivery service so that spacecraft could be optimized for cislunar operations without having to have large uh, propulsion systems to be able to, to get them uh, to their final orbit. And so we have developed our Ranger vehicle. So first scouts and then Rangers, which serve the function of the multifunctions of uh, precision delivery into cislunar orbit, um, as well as once they deliver their, their customers, whether they're, they're our own scouts, um, you know, deliver uh, something for quantum space, um, but also for others uh, to have a delivery service and, and not, uh, it, it makes logical sense to be able to then provide that uh, delivery service to whether that's U.S. government or other governments or commercial customers. Uh, we, we definitely are looking for um, additional clients who are looking to be delivered uh, into the cislunar space um, or geo. We'll get to geo in a minute. Um, so scouts and rangers together um, will form this interconnected mesh network of both sensing spacecraft, COM and PNT um, service providers to our customers, um, and uh, as well as providing them to data products from, from the assist, uh, space domain awareness data we'll be collecting. And we, we need to get that data back down to Earth. You know, as, as the uh, uh, moon, uh, as the Earth rotates around, um, it puts a, an additional burden on cislunar assets to have ground stations all the way around the Earth. And again, that just adds cost and complexity to those missions. So by having um, elements of our quantum net uh, constellation um, around GEO, 
Uh, it will allow uh, uh, the low latency transmission of our customers' data to our assets in, in GEO and then to a ground station or ground stations on Earth uh, with high throughput. If you want to talk uh, sound bites for ambitious plans, uh, we think a terabyte to the moon or a terabyte from the moon um, is is really the way this industry is heading. And we're, we're probably won't be rolling out with that throughput in the beginning. Um, but eventually that is our goal is to allow um, you know, just more science, more exploration, um, better national security by providing, uh, you know, really high throughput, uh, a comm relay service uh, all the way to the ground uh, for our customers. So we, we talked about disposal. I, I promised to circle back to that thought. And here it is. The economics of satellite servicing, and, and I know a little bit about servicing from my time at NASA. The economics of servicing are, you know, many, many faceted um, replacement cost of the vehicle, the cost to do a mission to either do life extension, more fuel, um, or a pod like like uh, Space Logistics provides, um, or to upgrade equipment. It varies whether you're in LEO, uh, low inclination, LEO polar, geo, and out at the moon. The economics of launch cost and replacement cost uh, make that a, uh, a wicked problem or a tremendous opportunity, how you want to look at it. So, so we certainly envision the need to service our own fleet, um, more fuel, upgraded equipment, um, and that implies a servicing vehicle. So the third vehicle in our fleet is what we call our outpost. And that is where we will be providing these uh, uh, upgrade and life extension services to our own uh, uh, assets, as well as to other customers. So that's completes the circle all the way back to the thought of uh, disposal services. Whether it makes sense to, to grab you know large uh, spacecraft and j- place them in particular spot on the surface of the moon or have sufficient delta V to get them out of lunar gravity um, for an either uh, an Earth return or a, a burn up into the sun, uh, we have not uh, explored that very deeply at this point, but uh, but it is an interesting thought. So thanks for bringing that up earlier. And 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 I feel like recycling is you know in, you know in theory the optimum approach if you can pull it off, right? Yeah, there are companies that are seriously working on those technologies. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be at the Global Satellite Servicing Forum in on the 12th of October. Um, which may be past tense by the time people listen to this, but uh, my my panel there is talking about the benefits of in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing in cislunar space. And recycling is a huge aspect, either recycling or uh, of lunar regolith that's brought up from the surface um, or uh, recycling components or entire satellites that are you know no longer functional. Um, it takes so much uh, energy to get things out there. It, it's an awful shame to to just throw it away. Mm. Um, my my company is not working on recycling today, but uh, but the logic uh, and the economics of it certainly makes sense for for future technologies. So we, that brought up a whole host of, or at least three questions that I have now. <laughs> um, so uh, is my understanding correct that uh, Espa and Espa Grande, right? This is a um, a size classification of satellites where that specifically are ones that have standardized uh, interfaces with like NASA uh, products, I guess? Uh, yeah, the, that has become an industry standard. Uh, ESPA 
is, um, let me see, ESPA volume is roughly, um, uh, well, you guys, somebody can Google it real quick maybe, but it's, I think it's roughly 24 by 24 by 24 inches. Um, and then ESPA Grande is, is twice that volume. And it does refer to the ESPA ring, which uh, Moog uh, produces the, um, and, and the volume of, of the assets that it can carry uh, has turned into this this common classification called uh, an ESPA class, uh, and then ESPA Grande is is uh, twice that volume. They it also accompanies the standard interfaces as you as you mentioned, whether it's a a 15 inch connection uh, ring to the uh, host satellite or or 24 inch ring in the case of an ESPA Grande. Um, and and just 10 more seconds on that. The reason why that has become such a a common and popular standard is rideshare. Whether it's a a ring under a a large prime payload, you know, just think of a spacer that pushes that prime payload up an additional twenty four or forty eight inches, um, and then of course SpaceX then started doing nothing but rideshare missions, these transporter missions that will carry you know uh, sixty plus and and even a hundred plus satellites on a single launch, um, where they all you know uh, get brought to orbit and then they they head their their separate directions. So we. Our, our Ranger vehicle is is very similar to that. It's got the same form factor as a as a Moog ESPA ring, um, so that it could sit under a prime payload, or you could just stack a few of these on on top of themselves, and you get this uh, tall cylindrical stack uh, with uh, radially mounted um, uh, either delivery assets or or payloads that would just remain attached to Ranger for payload hosting. That is an additional service that we are we are offering to our customers is not just delivery in cislunar space but payload hosting if there was a a country or a company that didn't want to go to the expense to have their own complete satellite with all the burdens associated uh, with that that uh, we offer payload hosting where if they're just interested in a, a radiation monitoring or a camera or a communications experiment or whatever it may be that we offer uh, payload hosting uh, on on both our scouts and our rangers, but in particular, ranger uh, being a larger vehicle uh, can can handle more payload swap uh, for those for those customers. That, that that makes sense, and and I assume so. I'm assuming outposts then would be larger than those two, but is that still in the small sat classification or? Uh, no, so uh, uh, a ranger is is a neighborhood of. Um, well, fully loaded with with fuel, um, it's it's north of two metric tons. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ranger's pretty big. Uh, a, a Scout class vehicle is around four hundred and fifty kilograms. Uh, a Ranger is north of two metric tons, fully loaded, and uh, you know, uh, with with payloads and all, it's it's close to three metric tons. Uh, outpost uh, would uh, would be even larger than that. Um, envision a. Um, a couple of uh, uh, five-foot diameter rings that are four feet tall each, uh, stacked on top of each other, and then a robotic system on top of that to uh, do the manipulation um, of the client vehicle that would come to it um, for either fuel or to have its its uh, payloads upgraded. It sounds like this modularity is built into your sort of you know approach to 
designing these spacecraft? I was trained as a as an engineer on the Hubble Space Telescope program, and then with my my robotic servicing experience, that modularity is the key to flexibility. If you can take it apart, if you can remove it, if you can add to it, um, you you just give yourselves options in the future that aren't cut off um, otherwise. You know, we think nothing of uh, plugging in a lamp in the socket today and, and plugging a computer in that same spot tomorrow. Well, it's because it's a modular power port, right? It, 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 we, we put in flash drives, although not as much as we used to. Um, and those weird things of the past called floppy disks. So yeah, we it, it's not surprising that floppy disks worked uh, or flash drives worked to move data uh, in and out because that was designed as a modular interface and not hardwired in or, or highly integrated. So yes, we, we at Quantum Space, we definitely uh, keep the mindset of modularity front and center as we are designing our, uh, our architecture so that we can provide, you know, uh, lower cost services to our to our customers in the future. So I understand uh, we're still kind of in the early phases of quantum net, so to speak, in terms of developing it. But uh, do you have? Can you tell us much about how the constellation would work? Is this going to be um, for cislunar space? Is it going to be some that are in orbit around the moon, some that are in uh, different Lagrange points or just one Lagrange point or, you know, exactly how are they going to be kind of proliferated in space to be able to give you that kind of coverage? Yeah, that's a super question. We are optimizing our uh, constellation plans now. Um, we are working on our first few satellites. We definitely are focusing on Earth-Moon Lagrange point one and two. Um, those are critical uh, locations. Um, they are they are unstable orbits, uh, which means that they do require fuel to to remain in those in those orbits. L two is nice because it gives you persistent uh, viewing to the far side of the moon. There's also some some special orbits. Uh, low lunar orbit is also interesting, and there are many many advantages to that. Um, you know, closer to the assets on the surface of the moon, of course. But your viewing angle to the moon is now restricted because you're you're right up close on top of it. But the other orbits that we are we are certainly focusing on are is called lunar resonance orbits, and these orbits uh, go around the Earth um, of highly elliptical orbits go, go around the Earth uh, about the distance of geo from the Earth, and they come up to L1 as their apogee, uh, and then they uh, and then back around the Earth. Um, and so these are these are interesting orbits because they give us access to both uh, geo and cislunar as they as they take these uh, through their paths. And so we are we are assessing all of them as well as uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, putting things in in geo and not exactly in a geo slot, uh, but rather in in super geo, uh, a few hundred kilometers above geo. So processing around uh, the geo ring, we think uh, makes uh, additional a sense for it to have additional nodes um, in in super geo lunar resonance orbits, Earth one, uh, Earth moon L one and and L two. All of those is is likely going to be where we position our assets. And and just to be clear, in case anybody listening is having the same question I had, although I think I might know what the answer is, but super geo sounds almost like a graveyard orbit for geo. Is that is that not quite as far up as graveyard? And so that's why you're not going to be running into all these derelict <laughs> geosatellites from the 80s? Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It's that, that sweet spot between, although 
you know, I'll, I'll repeat what I said earlier. Um, it might be the quote of the whole podcast, and that is, space is big. <laughs> I don't know if mm-hmm. any of your other uh, guests have ever commented on that or not, but it is ginormously big. And and yes, there are quite a few assets in the graveyard, um, but but the density and the so the probability of collision is still pretty low uh, because the density is so low. Now, that being said, uh, we certainly want to be thoughtful about our orbit and uh, ensuring that we don't collide with anything. And um, and that that's a great segue into that the one of the data products that our super geo uh, assets will be uh, collecting and providing is cataloging uh, where those objects are and propagating their orbits out so that uh, we can reduce the probability probability of collision of anything to a geo graveyard orbit. Assets on the ground do track objects in geo routinely every minute of every day, but having an asset there with an orthogonal view to the view that uh, we get from the ground, we think will be very complementary to the data that is collected from ground assets. If that makes mm. sense. And and since you bring it up, can I ask what your plans are for ground assets? We are a commercial company, so we will be using commercial ground stations uh, to get our data down. Um, we are not planning any telescopes on the ground, any radars on the ground, and and today we are not planning uh, to have our own ground stations. Uh, but we might be conducting some some internal studies to see, you know, when when do the economics make sense to have our own assets on the ground. But our present plans for the next few years will be to rely on the uh, the great uh, uh, services of existing uh, ground station companies, ground station providers. With these, uh, this, you know, the scouts and the rangers, um, will you be using, like for these, these links in the node, is this going to be uh, multiple channels? Is it going to be uh, a particular, you know, different gain channels as well? Um, and uh, and also kind of a random question I had is, do, do all the rules of like allocating and purchasing spectrum and whatnot apply if you're just, you know, having two maybe interlinks on the far side of the moon talking to each other? Uh, do you still have to actually go through the ITC and, you know, get permission from them to do that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Intersatellite links around the moon uh, are not controlled by the ITU. Um, Sorry, to, ITU. To my, <laughs> yeah, to my knowledge, um, because, you know, there, there's not spectrum interference with ground. Uh, that is, you know, the prime function of the ITU. We certainly in the beginning... Um, uh, assets that are being designed as we are speaking today cannot plan on our services because we're not in space yet. And so they will, they're being designed to communicate to the ground. So our first satellites will look like ground stations. We'll be, we'll have receivers in the same bands that they are broadcasting in so they can treat us like, like, uh, uh, pseudo ground stations, um, because they, they will, their assets you know, potentially will be in orbit before ours. Um, as our uh, constellation matures, then we will shift over to uh, higher frequency and more efficient uh, intersatellite link bands uh, that will allow our customers greater throughput. Uh, we certainly understand the, the, the economics are, are such that uh, they likely will not be baselining their comm architecture on ours until we've, we've gotten some assets in orbit. And so there will be a transition from from us looking like ground stations to looking like an intersatellite link as the evolution of quantum net matures. So that we've talked about, um, we've thrown out the word ambitious a few times. <laughs> and a big part of that ambition is that 
it seems like these satellites are wearing multiple hats at the same time. And so for me, it seems beyond daunting, but do you have much of a, an idea or, a, or an approach for how you are going to handle, like, how much time is this particular link going to be spending uh, communicating and doing PNT for some spacecraft versus doing uh, remote sensing for another one versus shifting into its uh, space domain awareness mode? Um, how, how do you approach that kind of uh, question? Yeah, uh, autonomy. Autonomy. Mm. We, we are designing our systems uh, with a constellation management autonomy uh, smarts that will do exactly what you just said. You know, if, if node... X happens to be close to resident space object Y, well, then it will, as you, and, and it's a, let's say it's a, a, a spent rocket body, uh, it will switch into a, a, a collection mode. Um, and then uh, uh, 10 minutes later, it's now close to a customer who, you know, needs PNT uh, a refresh. Um, and then it, and then it, opens up an RF link to that customer to provide that service. And so, yeah, it, it does, it does quickly become uh, overwhelming for a pre-planning uh, based on the chaotic nature of orbits in the uh, three body uh, space of um, gravity influences out around the moon. Um, and so uh, we, we absolutely are working on autonomous software that will allow uh, uh, constellation management to do precisely what you just said. Um, so we are not there yet. Our, our first birds will be uh, more manual, but we definitely will be conducting experiments with them that uh, allows us to uh, run a more efficient network uh, for our customers um, as the quantum net uh, fills out. And I guess on, on that subject, do, do you do you have kind of figured out how you're going to get to space or cislunar space in particular with your first birds that you're sending up there? We have done a lot of uh, discussions um, on launch options. There is there's really um, the, there's two macro paths that bifurcate quickly. Uh, path A being rideshare and path B being buy your own rocket. Um, and so we are exploring both. Uh, there are pros and cons to each. You know, it's it's great to only pair, pay for a part of the rocket, um, but you are then beholden to uh, the schedule for whatever the prime payload is on that mission, which sometimes uh, isn't um, always great uh, to have your plans, uh, uh, you know, controlled by others. But it costs less money uh, overall. Um, it's certainly more cost effective to purchase an entire uh, launch mass of an entire rocket. And then you get to control your own destiny. It just requires a larger outlay of capital to do so, obviously. Um, so we are exploring both options uh, deeply. We um, we are a commercial company. Um, we we are raising money from from our wonderful investors, and uh, um, we feel an incredible sense of uh, stewardship responsibility to to spend that money uh, wisely. And uh, so we are exploring both these these paths uh, in great detail as we as we look forward to our plans. Um, you know, when, when we get to the Ranger class vehicle, um, that starts to, to utilize, you know, a lot of mass on a, on a rocket. And so those start to, to drive the economics for those missions to, to, to getting an entire rocket. But if we're just launching one or two scouts, then then we, we have more options. So we're, we're exploring both uh, uh, in detail. Well, well either way, uh, 
whether it's rideshare or dedicated launch, um, we will be sure to give a special shout out when you appear on our upcoming space flight events, <laughs> uh, which will be even more exciting if, uh, you know, if you're flying on an Electron and you get to give it a funny name. Uh, I guess you should start thinking about that now. <laughs> yeah, they, they do have interesting names, don't they? <laughs> they do. And they come up organically, I believe is how they kind of describe uh, how, how it happens. So uh, I guess and just to, sorry if I had missed this, but like it, and the Ranger class satellites, they also can be part of the uh, the the communications relay network? Yeah, we envision uh, Rangers, once they've done their their early jobs of, uh, of client delivery and scout delivery into cislunar space, they will then serve as uh, large uh, nodes. They can handle much larger apertures and higher power transmitters for uh, comm relay and PNT services. So we, we absolutely have uh, multiple tasks uh, for those larger class vehicles. Um, and, and I should mention GEO here is um, we, we are not the first company to think of, and we, uh, and we applaud those that have used Lunar Gravity Assist to get more mass to GEO in the past. Um, right, this has been done before um, by both us and, and Chinese, um, um, endeavors. And so we are, we are most certainly looking at the, the advantages that come with lunar gravity assist, uh, for pure geo missions, right? If we're sending a ranger to geo, uh, there's no re you, we, we can go, a, a geo direct or GTO, uh, but there's no reason why we couldn't use a TLI trajectory, uh, translunar injection. Uh, to mm. go uh, around the moon and then into geo, you the the moon serves uh, wonderfully to help take some of that inclination uh, change out of the uh, out of the orbit path, uh, saving a lot of propellant. So we can actually carry more mass to the moon uh, by doing a lunar gravity assist than going uh, 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 you know on a GTO trajectory, for example. And so we you know the same services that we are offering to our uh, cislunar customers of uh, a payload delivery. Um, or payload hosting um, in in geo is is a is a big part of our plans. So we we still have the North Star vision to you know to be that beyond geo uh, provider of services uh, infrastructure for the global community. But th that also includes these uh, these geo uh, delivery and, and payload hosting opportunities as well. Have you thought about uh, if Lunar Gateway? basically gets established and put around the moon and having that basically acting as a customer. And I mean, obviously NASA is always going to have things around the moon. And so they're always a potential customer, but like, have you thought, thought about uh, space stations and how they could use your, your network at all? Absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah. We, um, being a, uh, 22 years with NASA and uh, 16 of them as a civil servant. Uh, I've got a very fond, uh, a very soft spot in my, in my heart for them. And, um, we we applaud their their uh, uh, Artemis uh, and their uh, lunar gateway plans, and uh, we we think our services complement uh, what they are doing. It certainly does not replace them, um, but we think you know providing com relay service, uh, providing uh, resupply. You know, if we're launching once or twice a year to to cis lunar orbit, then uh, uh, bringing supplies to them, whether that's uh, food and water or uh, scientific experiments or uh, scientific payloads to be uh, located on the outside uh, of Lunar Gateway. Uh, we think there's many opportunities where NASA can, uh, you know, make 
uh, effective use of the taxpayer dollar by taking advantages of these co- of these commercial services. Um, so we we look forward to Lunar Gateway uh, getting to orbit, and whether they end up using our services or not, it does it doesn't change our enthusiasm for uh, for their plans and what they've got going on. Yeah, that actually reminds me. Doesn't NASA have LunaNet uh, that they're envisioning, and that that's something that you might be part of or that you're looking at? Yeah, you're exactly right. So LunaNet, yeah, yeah, LunaNet is a set of uh, interoperability standards. Um, it's a vision that the the folks at, at Goddard Space Flight Center um, have to m- maximize interoperability between all these various assets that are going up there. Um, and there is nothing in, in our plans that precludes compatibility with and being a node on LunaNet. Now, that being said, I don't know that we are going to only restrict ourselves to the COM standards that they have outlined in LunaNet. Um, I, I don't think that would serve our, our customers well, um, but but we we think that's a, a great uh, endeavor that they are undertaking, and we, we plan on fully being interoperable uh, with it. And I mean, I feel like that's, that's a pretty good theme, uh, I feel like I've caught, which is a lot of companies seem to be successful now because they don't offer a service, but rather multiple services um, that kind of work together in space. And so uh, that seems to be the theme is that quantum space or quantum net in particular, you know, has multiple capabilities is, is the name of the game. Well, that's right. It gives, I mean, as a businessman, it gives me uh, uh, revenue resilience if one or two of those possible revenue streams uh, don't work out so well in a particular time period. There are other revenue streams to, you know, to keep um, things humming along, as well as diversity of service to our customers. Of course, that's nice as well. We can give you a ride to orbit and then we can be your comm provider. You know, we can be your Uber. And then we can be your AT and T, and we can be your your GPS since you know GPS is not accessible out there. Um, and you can, if you sign up today, you get bundle pricing um, <laughs> for all these services. So yeah, for, for for many reasons, it makes sense to to not limit ourselves to uh, uh, to just one. Oh, and then we'll provide you collision avoidance warnings if. Um, you know, as they come up um, as, as part of the service plan. <laughs> Could be helpful. So it's basically a l- lunar mission as a service, almost. That's right. We want you to focus on your payload and your mission and not have to worry about that pesky infrastructure stuff. All right, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, we have two traditional final questions. Uh, the second to last one is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Three locations. We have our main website is at quantumspace.us. And again, that's .us, not .com. Um, uh, our Quantum Space LinkedIn page as well as uh, Ben Reed LinkedIn page. Uh, those are the three best places to, to find uh, uh, me as well as uh, my company. We will have those in the show notes. And then uh, we've had, I think, two final questions so far. And it was the same question that we'd asked everybody. And we're actually going to debut a new one today. So Dennis, uh, you got that question? So Ben, our final question What's the smallest question within your industry or field to which you have not been able to find an answer? Where is the Kessler syndrome most probable? 
low Earth orbit or a low lunar orbit. No, I got nothing better than that. Uh, that's it for us again. Thank you for your time. It was it was great getting to talk to you and uh, learning about uh, what Quantum is doing. I really enjoyed it. Thanks everyone for their for their time today. All right, so uh, moving on to uh, this week in spaceflight history, we have just two winners. We have Uncle Willie and Psykyle, and they both get bonus points, and the clue was four forbidden cough drops. So that's a very interesting, whimsical clue. So, But, I mean, some people got exactly the right answer for the right reasons. So what is yeah. uh, this event? <laughs> well, so we were recording, and, and Chris goes, oh, crap, I forgot, I got to go. And uh, no, C- Chris would have gotten it wrong because he, he uh, in the chat, is saying something plutonium-related. And, you know, plutonium is definitely my favorite forbidden cough drop. Uh, but these uh, are... are- <laughs> <laughs> these are the not spicy version. Uh, these are the cool ranch forbidden cough drops. All right. This week in spaceflight history is the 11th of October, 2000. It was the launch of STS 92, the 100th shuttle mission. Um, so this was ISS assembly mission three a. So discovery spent seven days, uh, docked to the ISS and on board, it had three, uh, main payloads. It had the Z one truss, it had PMA three, and it also had two DDCUs. Don't believe Wikipedia. The Wikipedia entry for STS-92, and I've not edited this because I feel uncomfortable about it, uh, but Wikipedia says that a DDCU is a heat pipe and is not. It's a DC to DC conversion unit or converter unit. And for some reason, I went to go edit it. And for some reason, I just felt really not confident that I was right, even though I'm confident enough to say confidently here on the mic (laughs) that I am right. But the clue is in reference to uh, four of the things that were inside the Z1 truss. They were the four CMGs, uh, control moment gyroscopes. Uh, And of course, uh, the CMGs are really important to keeping ISS running long term. It allows ISS to point in the direction it wants without having to consume any fuel. And of course, if you want to do a really big orientation change, you're usually going to use fuel. They've done some really fun experiments where they were able to change the orientation of the station without using any fuel. Um, and those are really cool. And I believe we've talked about them before. Uh, but for the most part, right, the the CMGs are the the everyday kind of bread and butter. Let's make sure that we're uh, rotating the whole station relative to the stars once every orbit. Make sure the belly is facing the Earth. Interestingly enough, the CMGs uh, like were not the point of this. They they actually weren't activated uh, until assembly mission A five. Uh, that was two missions later. That was STS uh, ninety eight, um, which also brought up uh, the Destiny module. So you would think that having these CMGs on board would be really handy. And, you know, it is. But actually, there were other aspects of Z1 that were why it was brought up so early. The fact that they didn't even activate the CMGs for another two missions kind of tells you that they were kind of there because they had to be. And the thing that we really needed Z1 there was for power. Uh, The next mission, uh, STS-97, would be bringing up uh, the P6 truss. Um, so that's the port end there, right? Uh, P6 and P5 both have solar rays. Uh, S6 and S5 also have two solar rays. But in this case, Z1 is there 
for P6, which was the first one brought up. And they came and they plonked it on top of the Z1 truss and immediately started drawing power from those solar rays. And this was the way that they were going to be able to actually attach it to station. Uh, so right. This is an assembly mission. They did a lot of construction work, uh, over this mission. The day after they docked with ISS, uh, Koichi Wakata actually did the transfer to Mount Z1 on Unity's Zenith port. And that's where it stayed, uh, for the rest of its life. I mean, it hasn't reached the end of its life yet, but that's where it's going to be not moving. Um, and then inside the station, Pam Melroy and Jeff Weissoff, uh, went over to unity and opened the Zenith hatch. Like this is one of those things that you either know, or you don't know, but Z one actually has pressurized volume. And Dennis, when you were, um, talking about how many modules there were, uh, I held my tongue cause I didn't want to spoil the Twisif, but I'm pretty sure that the Z one truss was included in that list of 16 because it has pressurized volume. So, right. So they, uh, they go and they open the hatch and they can actually stick their heads up into Z1. I don't know exactly how big the pressurized volume is, but I think it's like a head and shoulders area. Like it's, it's a, a lot of room. Actually, the reason that they were in there was to attach grounding leads so that the, uh, the truss, uh, all of the truss segments ground out to Z, to Z1 and then Z1 is actually grounded to station. So you don't have uh, static uh, electricity building up. Like everything is at the same potential. And like, I can't imagine what would happen if you didn't do that. Like those solar arrays are so huge. I got to assume that they would be so at such a different potential that like you would have probably like a fatality risk if somebody was grounded to station and went near it. Like I, th I think it would be pretty terrifying. Okay. So um, then they had four EVAs on this mission. Uh, EVA one, uh, they went out and connected power cables to Z1. Uh, and then they did some like minor maintenance kind of stuff. Um, EVA two, they went out and they worked with the, uh, with the arm and they moved PMA three from the shuttle's bay to unity's nadir port. Um, and they also did some minor prep work, uh, on Z1. So moving PMA three seems like a, a really minor thing, but I think it's so interesting that the PMAs came up, not just in the shuttle. They were actually mounted to uh, a space lab pallet. And it's like kind of cool that they had like extra mounting uh, hardware. So moving a PMA to the nadir node um, of unity might seem a bit weird, right? Like it's in the, in the center of space station and you don't really have something sticking out from the belly. Um, and indeed, it was only there for uh, the next two missions. Remember, I talked about uh, STS-97 and STS-98? Well, uh, STS-97 uh, docked there because they needed the correct geometry to be able to install P6 on top of the Z1 truss. It actually docked with its nose facing aft so that its tail and engines were facing forward. And in a world where there's only unity and the Russian segment that leaves a lot of wide open access space to get into the shuttle's, um, cargo bay. Um, and then, you know, lift up the giant, um, P six, uh, module and, and stick it up on top of the Z one pointing straight up. Right. Then STS 98 also docked there. And the reason they did that is because they brought up the destiny lab and, you can't 
dock to the forward node of Unity and then also put Destiny at the forward node of Unity. So they docked to the Zenith, they took PMA2 off and then uh, were able to put Destiny in place and and replace um, the PMA. And after that, no one ever docked there ever again. It was always to the forward, well, and until Harmony comes along, right? And they're always talking to the to the forward node, uh, which whichever is the most forward node, that's where PMA2 is for the most part. That's where PMA2 is and that's where shuttle's docking. Right, so that's EVA2. EVA3 uh, went back to focusing on Z1 again. They installed those two DDCUs, the DC to DC converter units. Um, and I thought this would be a good time to talk about the DDCU and how it's definitely not heat pipe. <laughs> um, I hope, I hope. Uh, I, I pretty confident, um, but the DDCUs, um, do this really cool thing. The, the primary, uh, bus is what takes power from the solar arrays and like smushes it all together, right? Kind of like the power grid. You could think of it like the terrestrial power grid, the voltage on that primary bus will float up and down depending on how much light is hitting the solar arrays. And so the DDCUs take that fluctuating voltage and regulate it um, to 124.5 volts. Um, And that's sort of the first place that the actual users of the power can start to access it. So I found uh, an article that was a description of the DDCU architecture, and it really just reads like the Rockwell retro encabulator video. And so I wanted to read a couple sentences and then not come back and describe what's actually going on here. The terms here are not that crazy. If you're into electronics, you may well understand most or all of this. Um, but I think it sounds pretty silly if you are not familiar with electronics at all. Um, so the DDCUs feature a flyback current fed push pull topology or improved Weinberg circuit, which was chosen for this converter because of its potential for high efficiency and reliability to enhance efficiency on a non dissipative snubber circuit. <laughs> See, I can't even get through it to enhance efficiency, a non dissipative snubber circuit for a, the very low RDS on field effect transistors or FETs was utilized. Uh, redistributing the energy that could be wasted during the switching cycle of the power fets. Was I right or was I right? Yeah, makes total sense. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) I think that's really great. Okay. So that's EVA3. EVA4 uh, was mostly just for fun. Um, They tested the CBM latches, the common birthing mechanism latches on Unity, uh, to make sure that they were going to be able to dock uh, Destiny there. Um, they deployed, quote, a tray that will be used to provide power to the U.S. lab. Um, and I was able to find a really good photo of this, but no real description uh, with just, you know, five minutes of Googling. But basically, uh, when they say tray, they really mean box with plugs on one end. So it's got some power and some fluid um, plugs and quick disconnects and that kind of thing that later when Destiny comes in, they're going to plug in and, and pull a lot of good stuff through that tray. They removed a grapple fixture that was still on Z1, and then they got around to plan. I say this with the understanding that everybody knows that I love space, I respect astronauts and their work, and that this was not done for fun. This was work, but it sure sounds like a lot of fun. They got to test SAFER, right? SAFER is um, now used on every single spacewalk, and it's the mini jetpack. Uh, the MMU, the man maneuvering unit is like the full on jetpack that I think flew two or three times, uh, and just proved to 
be really bulky and, and not that great of a thing or that great of a requirement for an EVA. And if you don't require it, it's probably easier to do something else. It's a lot less work. Well, Safer is kind of like the little brother. Um, and it's just a little box that plugs onto the bottom of the backpack of uh, the U.S. spacesuit. And it's never been used uh, in anger, as it were. Um, we've never needed to save somebody using it. But if you found yourself off structure, you could use Safer to get back home. You don't have much Delta V. Um, it's just a couple of feet per second. But, you know, if you're drifting off a station, uh, it's, it's really just the right thing to have. And so to to come up with the clue for this week, I really wanted to make uh, a joke about Bruce McCandless and the MMU and that iconic photo of him drifting uh, in front of the earth with nothing touching him. Uh, and I was thinking something like, you know, McCandless got nothing on this, but really Bruce very, very much has got something on this. They did just one flight. They called it one gentle 50 foot flight. And, uh, on that one gentle 50 foot flight, they had a tether. So I'm sure it was a lot of fun. Wasn't as much fun as Bruce got to have. Cause I, I understand he really enjoyed, uh, using the MMU. Like from what I understand, McCandless had like George Clooney in gravity levels of fun with the MMU, uh, like not exactly zipping around, but like he really enjoyed it as, uh, is what I've heard. And so I'm sure it wasn't that much fun, but you gotta, you gotta think that would have been pretty fun to test out a jetpack. Um, mm-hmm. but there you go. That's your, this week in space flight history. Good. This week in space flight history. I like this one. Yeah. And uh, good gravity reference. I was actually thinking about that when you were talking about this. So next week, uh, the date range for the next week's, uh, event will be the 17th through the 23rd of October. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do next week in 2007. Face forward. All right. Well, if you have a guesses to what that clue is referencing, you can shoot us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf. And uh, right now we only check the federated toots on bots in dot space and spacey dot space, but you can always mention at orbital podcast at bots in dot space. And then also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord type slash twisf, T-W-S-F, to hand in your guest directly to our Tombot. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, and thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. Uh, we just have one launch, but we have four events. So what's the first event? Yeah, so the first event is actually a little bit of a cluster of events. Um, this is going to be uh, a whole to-do on NASA TV. Um, we're going to start with the reveal of the OSIRIS-REx sample. That's going to be pretty cool. And then after that, you can catch some uh, pre-launch briefing uh, and the rollout for the Psyche mission. And all of that is going to be on NASA TV on Wednesday, October 11th. Um, the sample reveal is at 11 a.m. The pre-launch briefing and rollout are at 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. respectively. And all those times are Eastern Standard. Uh, you can find them by searching NASA TV on, on YouTube. Really easy. And then on October 12th, we have our only launch of the week, but it is a very uh, substantial launch indeed. <laughs> uh, we've got a Falcon Heavy that will be taking the Psyche spacecraft to the asteroid that has the same name, 16 Psyche. Uh, it's going to take about four years for it to get there, and so we got some time until it actually reaches the object, but uh, that'll include a Mars flyby, and yeah, should be really cool. 
Psyche the asteroid is the object that was once thought to be, you know, uh, maybe it was like going to be all metal. Now it's not so clear that that's going to be the case. But in any event, having another mission to a small body will be really cool. And so again, this is uh, on Thursday, October 12th with an instantaneous launch at 141649 UTC, and it'll be flying out of Launch Complex 39A at the Cape. Then after that, on the 12th, we have a spacewalk. Uh, we have US Spacewalk 89 um, on the International Space Station, and that is to collect some microorganism samples and to install a new high-definition camera on the ISS truss. Uh, and so the uh, spacewalkers involved in that, NASA astronaut Laurel O'Hara, and then ESA astronaut Andreas Morgensen. So that will be beginning at approximately 10 a.m. Uh, in that's Eastern time, and it will last approximately six hours. You can watch that on NASA TV, so check it out. All right, our fourth and final event is uh, less space and more terrestrial solar. It is a annular eclipse that is going to be uh, flying its way over the western United States. So it will uh, come aground uh, in the middle of Oregon. It'll just barely nick California. Then it will pass through Nevada, Utah, a little bit of Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and then straight across the south half, the southwest half of Texas. Um, and from there, it will actually follow oddly enough, uh, straight down the neck of Central America and cut through a pretty broad swath of South America, um, spending most of its time in Brazil. The center, like the greatest eclipse, is going to be right over uh, Central America. Um, so like, you guys enjoy it. It's going to be cool. Uh, very few other <laughs> people are going to be able to see that totality because there's just not a lot of land there, right? That is going to be happening on October 14th. Uh, that's a Saturday. Uh, if you are in the Southwest, if you're in the Northern half of South America or Central America, do make a point to go out and watch it. Make sure to get, you know, glasses or whatever, but like it's worth putting down your work uh, and going to check out, even though it's an annular eclipse and not a total eclipse. If you are not in those areas, you can also uh, find some coverage on NASA TV. Um, they're going to be starting their coverage Saturday, October 14th at 1130 a.m. Eastern. Um, and uh, that concludes our upcoming spaceflight events. And I guess that concludes the show. So let's yeah. do orbit it. <laughs> and we would like to thank Ronald Jakey and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris S., Colin, The Greek, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com about. Or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you. Thank you.